0: Live from the Business Radio X studio in Atlanta, it's time for Dental Business Radio, brought to you by Practice
1: Quotient. Practice Quotient bridges the gap between the provider and payer communities.
0: Now here's your host, Patrick O'Rourke.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Dental Business Radio. This is your host, Patrick O'Rourke. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Practice Quotient, PPO Analysis and Negotiation, that's a If you're a top-tier dental professional and you don't feel like you're being reimbursed by the insurance companies on your contracts for top-tier work, then you should call the fine folks at Practice Quotient. It's 470-592-1680, or you can email info at practicequotient.com. Please be sure to mention Dental Business Radio, and they will uh, send some good karma your way. Um, So I'm really excited today is I get to talk to Bill Barrett out of New York, and it's really national. He's super lawyer, noted author, and speaker. Uh, and I was reading his book, The DSO Decision, um, which we're going to talk about here in a second. But at first, I'd like to say, welcome, Bill. Thanks, welcome. Pat. Great to be on the show with you. Right, well, we appreciate you. This is the first time, ladies and gentlemen, we've taken this show on the road. So you are part of Dental Business
0: Radio history. I, I am glad to be a part of it, and it's been an exciting Twenty-four hours of getting ready for this event. <laughs> John Ray's hair; he's pulling, he's pulling
1: it up, but it's all right. You know, he got it dressed for you. Put on overalls and everything. So, just so you know, it you only know. took
0: me two planes to get to this off-site location. So. <laughs> That's a true story, by the way. Yeah. Two planes, Undisclosed.
1: So, Bill, um, tell me
0: what prompted you to write DSO decision. Well, Pat, really, you know, we've been getting phone calls. Well, let me go back a little bit. I've been doing mergers and acquisitions in the dental space for over 20 years. And historically, there's always been things that are uh, driving a marketplace that we'll notice we're getting a lot of questions from doctors around the country. But nothing like the last few years when it comes to the emergence and proliferation of DSOs around the country. I would say that on average, we get at least five to seven doctor inquiries a week from clients of ours that we've had for many years, asking us about the DSO market, about mergers and acquisitions with DSOs. Um, and we get it from all angles, both for on the side of preservation of private practice dentistry, people that are concerned about DSOs, as well as clients who are interested in doing a transaction or selling to a DSO. So it's really um, you know kind of across the board. And you know, by way of background, over the 20 plus years that I've been representing dentists and dental specialists around the country, we've built up over a thousand doctors as clients and they've been our clients for a long time. So we are often that first phone call when something's on their mind. And when the, we were getting so many calls and so many questions and the transaction volume began to grow in the DSO market, we thought it was time to write a book. So we did.
1: Well, I thought it was very uh, fair and looked at it from a lot of different angles. You, you know, there's, we get a lot of questions too, when we were obviously not lawyers, but from taking it from the history of DSOs and then looking at it from the sale and the types of structures, I thought it was very, very well done and
0: balanced just so you know. Thank and you. I, yes. You're very, very welcome. Yeah. We try not to, ha- to take a position either in terms of, You know, I like to say we didn't have a horse in the race. We wanted to write a book that was balanced from both sides. It's not a book that's promoting DSOs. It's not a book that's badmouthing DSOs. It's really just walking the doctor through every aspect of, you know, the history, what they are, what they do, how they make money, how the transactions themselves are structured. And then we even talk about preservation of private practice and how to compete um, and other and other concepts as well. But we really tried to do it from an unbiased standpoint. All right. So sometimes I have clients
1: that uh, and this is certainly not my area of, of expertise. But a client, they say to me, they're like, well, you know, th- this is a very hot topic and has been for a long time. But right now, I feel like it's certainly at a, a very high volume. And they go, what do you think, Pat? Somebody came in, I got an unsolicited offer for, and it's crazy. It's like 10 times multiple X, you know, blah, blah. And I don't have a horse. I don't have a dog in the fight either. So I'm neutral. I just, I go, look, this is not my area of expertise. As a business owner, it really comes down to kind of two things, right? All businesses, if you think about it, is control or money, right? So which one's more important to you? Um, and I've had a a lot of experience with DSOs, and there's small ones, large ones, and uh, let's call them the mega ones, which you did a really good job of kind of describing all of that in the book. Um, How prepared do you think the dental community, the owners are, to go into this process?
0: Well, I I think um, in terms of well, let me ask you a question. Are you talking about in terms of preservation of private practice, like how prepared are they to, to compete? Or are you talking about how prepared are they to actually engage in a transaction with a DSO?
1: Good. It's so good. So let me clarify. When somebody gets, let's say you have a client and they're just humming along, they're not necessarily... It, necessarily looking or actively looking to sell, and then somebody knocks on their door and then gives them an offer, and it blows their socks off. And they're like, "Wow, I wasn't really thinking about it, but this seems great." They took me out, they wine me, and they dine me, and they sure do. Uh, everything sounds like magic and sunshine
0: and rainbows. Is it really like that, Bill? Well, I, I think you got to start from the standpoint of as a doctor what is your strategy or what is your, your end game? You always start with the end in mind. And for example, if if I'm a doctor who is already at transition age where I'm hoping to be done practicing in the next year or two at the most, that's gonna be a hard deal to do with a DSO because generally they're gonna wanna see people that that enter into a longer term employment arrangement to maintain the status quo and hopefully grow the practice over time. So someone who's looking for the quick punch of their ticket might have uh, might have a challenge. Uh, and as you pointed out, too, you know, when you do a DSO deal, let's just say you are able to, you know, as you said, uh, the offer looks like all rainbows and sunshine. You know, the question is, are you going to be able to be part of a, of a much larger organization um, to have certain rules and regulation that come along with it? Uh, One of my clients talked to me about how the thing that he didn't expect was the training um, in terms of ongoing training and required calls that he had to participate on and so forth. So, you know, I think um, the other thing to consider is that all DSOs are different, which I talk about in the book, but, you know, there are a number of DSOs where their goal or their mission is to, you know, not interfere at all with the doctor. And of course, from a regulatory standpoint or legal standpoint, Um, there's a lot of case law on this and regulation, they, you know, a DSO cannot interfere with the the clinical aspect of dentistry at at all. And of course, there's some very famous cases in that regard that, that illustrate it. Um, But, you know, the question becomes whether or not the doctor, um, you know, picks the right opportunity because some DSOs will, will really encourage the doctor to maintain the status quo. They still run their operation the way that they always have. Um, they still are managing their people. They're still handling their patients the way they always have. So it really depends. Some DSOs don't, you know, don't even change the branding. You know, there's there's different approaches when it comes to brand identity, for example. Um, a lot there's a number of DSOs where they maintain the exact name of the practice as it was before, uh, in in order to not change the brand. And there's others that in fact change the brand completely to the to the corporate image. So, you know, part of it is when you get that magical offer is understanding, you know, is is this for me? And, and also understanding that if one DSO is interested in you, the odds are there are probably others that are interested in you. And if you go to the marketplace and and take a look at what's available, you may find the right fit. Great. Uh, I was just talking to an old friend of
1: mine, Dennis, dental business alumni, uh, Kevin Kumbas, about the same thing. Uh, seems there's a lot of folks leaving money on the table um let's go so let's keep with this situation uh, specifically so in my experience and i have you know, you know what i'm brought in to do is the ppo contracts uh i can say w- i would bet that none of my clients or any of the docs i've ever talked to have read them maybe maybe two all right. So I'm going to say that there may be there because there's, there's got to be somebody. But if they're not reading their their PPO contracts, which are, hey, listen, you know, it's not exactly uh, the most thrilling stuff in the world, but it's, um, I would say, less complex than a sale, a purchase sale and then having different, you know, types of stock, et cetera, and how is this all going to work? I would assume that it's going to be more than 20 pages. Would that be a safe
0: assumption? Oh, well, when it comes to the, the actual transaction with the DSO itself, um, and going back to kind of part of your other question about, you know, are doctors prepared? My experience is the average practitioner is not at all prepared for the type of transaction that they're about to embark on. Um, the contracts are very sophisticated. They are generally very extensive. You know, don't forget you're not only going to have the purchase and sale agreement for the sale itself, but for the rollover equity component, you're going to have an, an equity agreement, you know, quote partnership agreement of sorts that's going to govern the relationship. It's not uncommon that, that the partnership agreement alone is 80, 90 pages long because it contemplates a lot of different issues a lot of different um, levels of of equity. The purchase agreement, again, not uncommon that that could be, you know, 40 to 60 page document. And then you have the employment agreement as well, um, again, which is now going to govern what would probably be a four to five year uh, period of time for your employment with the DSO post-closing, as well as other ancillary documents. DSOs do a very deep dive, extensive financial and legal due diligence They tend to hire um, because they're backed by private equity and private equity groups tend to have relationships with very large law firms. Um, You are going to be dealing with sophisticated law firms, sophisticated accounting firms as part of the transaction process. And what doctors need to understand is those transactions are nothing like when they may have bought their practice years ago, or maybe they've since bought a couple of practices or sold a practice, but in doctor-to-doctor transactions, which are far less complicated and and they're much simpler, Um, I think doctors make a mistake. And I know this might sound like a shameless plug for a law firm like ours that's larger and more sophisticated, but it, it really is absolute truth that doctors go into these things thinking well, lots of people have done these deals before. The contracts are, quote, boilerplate. You know, I'm just going to sign on. They are not boilerplate contracts. They are able to be negotiated. There, There is tremendous devil in the details. It's not unusual on a transaction that we go back and forth on these extensive contracts, four, five, six, sometimes 10 times, to get the client uh, to a risk profile that they're comfortable with, because in these documents, the DSOs will try to shift risk. To the doctor, unless they understand these agreements, they they might not even understand you know where that risk is being shifted, or what rights they have. You know, um, sometimes they're surprised to find out afterward that they have no right to sell the stock that they get. They it's a completely illiquid investment. They can't say at some point when they you know uh, along the way, unless it's been negotiated for, or unless it's already in the documents, they can't force a DSO to buy their equity out. Sometimes. It it could be years later, and they can't liquidate any of it. Um, they might also be shocked to know in those documents that that even though they're actually paying for that stock through the rollover equity component, uh, that they have a vesting period on top of the fact that they're paying for it in a lot of deals. So there are so many little nuances to these agreements, and doctors often go in underrepresented um, or really lacking the appreciation of the sophisticated contract that they've entered into. Um, I just had a situation where that came up on a, on a deal out in the Midwest where uh, we helped the client through the, the process of getting their letter of intent signed, and they were thrilled with what the letter of intent represented. And just as all the contracts came out um, to save a few bucks, the client said, Oh, you know, I think I'll just use a local lawyer that I've used on some, you know, my local real estate transaction. I don't think I need a high powered law firm because my letter of intent looks great. And, you know, I'm saying to myself, this, this guy has no idea what he's embarking on and and he's going to end up signing an agreement that hasn't even been properly negotiated or reviewed for the single biggest transaction of his lifetime. And, um, you know, that makes no sense to me. But again, you know, part of the message that I try to get out, whether I'm lecturing or on a, on a program like yours today, Pat, is, you know, this is not the time in your career to go in, you know, underrepresented, uh, whether it's your from your accountant side or your lawyer's side, when you enter into a transaction like this. So hopefully that message gets out.
1: Well, that's part of uh, why I wanted to bring you on the show today. It certainly, I, it, you know. It's just my observation, and you know maybe that's anecdotal, but uh, I've talked to thousands of different uh mm-hmm. dentists and specialists over in you know over the course of the past uh, eight years since we founded practice quotient and there's always been a private equity component and and you know frankly I'm neutral in this um, and right now it's just there it's at a fever pitch it's certainly at a crescendo um and i feel like that there's a lot of listeners here that are getting out and that they they do they're they get kind of caught up in the moment if they'll fear of missing out or they have they know that they're really good they could be good business people and they could they're damn good clinicians um and so that gives them a high degree of confidence in their own ability um But just to put it in perspective, I negotiate contracts for a living. I read contracts for a living. I negotiate for a living. This is what I do all day long, every single day. Did I negotiate the lease on my house or my real estate deal? No. Right? So you have to have an expert. And I love lawyers. And I can't have enough of them. Um, <laughs> you're, and,
0: the, you're the one and only, Pat. You're the one and only for uh, sure.
1: An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And anytime you see on the other side of the table um, the big guns, if you will, you can rest assured that they didn't put that language. That document isn't ninety pages for no reason. It is something I talk about? You know, I talk about. It. I'm like that. That section's not in there if they they're like, Oh, well, we just put that in there. You know, that's something the lawyers did. No, they didn't just wake up and say, Hey, we're going to stick that in there. Um, it's everything is done very, very specifically and with a purpose. And if you don't have a trained eye, then you're going to get in trouble. Um, and I think that that's my concern is always to keep things fair and equitable. Um, so let's move on to a different circumstance. So, also what's happening right and has been happening is that there's lots of folks in there that are let's say that they they're running their practice and it's run it's top they're doing you know well above average they open up another one now there's two now they want to establish their own sort of, I call it a mini DSO, but a very small regional one, you know, maybe three practices to, you know, and they'll, they'll tell you, Hey, we're, we're going to get this up to eight practices or 10. It's always something like that. But um, where do you find, is there a practice tipping point where, is it a number of locations? Is the volume of dollars um, where they run into trouble with setting up the actual management company? Can you just walk through some of the things that our listeners should think about if they have two practices and they want to go to three, et cetera. If they have three and they want to go to six, they want six, they want to go to 12.
0: Yeah. Well, the first thing that I tell clients that they have to watch out for is what made practice number one, very successful um, might not necessarily be exactly the same for practice number two and three and so on. And too many doctors over the years have made the mistake of thinking that they're just going to continue to stretch themselves out Uh, because they worked so hard at practice number one and they built an amazing practice. And then when they go to practice number two, they're putting in three days a week at that practice and they stretch themselves too thin. So the first thing is to understand, you know, what your business plan is. Are you buying a practice and keeping the doctor on long-term who was there beforehand, like a DSO would do. Um, And, you know, when it comes to setting up a DSO, and we love doing it. Obviously, it's you know legal work for us, and, and it's fun to do. But I always say to clients, okay, before you make your life more complicated um, and sophisticated from a legal standpoint, you know, you always have to say, why am I setting up the DSO as a starting point? And you're setting up the DSO for really only a couple of reasons. You know, one would be if you wanted to bring in outside investment, so you want to get you know non licensed, you know, because remember the reason why. DSOs are formed by private equity groups is in most states currently um, you know 41 of the 49 of the 50 states and of, of the nine that are um, that do allow some interest by a non-licensed professional, uh, it's, it's generally very limited and there are a lot of rules that govern it. so in order to have any type of, of interest in the assets of, of a dental practice you have to set up a DSO because, because by definition you're not licensed. So one of the reasons why a a, a private practitioner might set up their own DSO is to bring in unlicensed people as investors. Uh, That that is one. It could be to create equity opportunities for their important staff members, like key office managers or other people in inside the office environment that are important that you want to be able to give them equity. And again, they're not licensed, so you would set up a DSO for that reason. And then then the last reason would be really, if you're trying to consolidate and centralize your services. So centralized billing and collecting, centralized marketing, centralized payroll. If you're trying to put that all under one company, um, you might organize it uh, as a DSO. And, and that would kind of go hand in glove if you're, if you're going to have minority partners or doctors that own equity at the various practice levels, which we actually recommend in order to scale to those eight or ten practices that you talked about you're gonna really need boots on the ground with with a vested interest at each of those practices um but if you're providing all of the managerial services you might want to have your dso set up in advance and have a certain um you know certain fees that are charged to the various practices each month for all the services that that you're performing so that would be a reason to do it Uh, Now, when a doctor comes to me and says, hey, I'm going to have two or three practices and uh, they're going to to be owned by the doctor um, and they say, and I want to set up a DSO, I'll often discourage them because I'll say, well, you're not bringing in outside investment and you're not trying to, um, you know, get somebody in the organization equity who's unlicensed um, and you're not really trying to, you know, centralize services for six, seven, eight, nine, ten practices. You could just own the practices and just manage them accordingly or even have a little holding company that owns the practices if you want to do some centralization of, of services or payroll, but you don't necessarily have to overly complicate. So I'm always very cautious to to advise the client you know, and dig into, okay, why are we setting up a DSO for you and does it make sense? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I see a lot of
1: structures done that way for exactly the reasons. Why you mentioned is in order to give equity out to the different locations, let's say an associate comes on, also to de-risk somewhat, let's say, you know, something happened at, um, you know, the Beale Street location and the liability stays there at Beale Street and doesn't affect the enterprise. Um, That's what I've heard is one of the other advantages of doing it that way. Um, What are some of the advantages of having one single tax ID for um, you know three four locations, if any?
0: Yeah, so I I I think that that's another reason actually um, where where you might set up an entity that does all the billing and and collecting, uh, which is a which is a good point. Um, Part of that centralization centralization of services that I described um, because that also avoids the need for Tax ID numbers uh, at you know different in every single location, um, so you know th- that's. But I am a believer, though you know, in terms of the practice owner ownership um, of trying to set up and and reasonable people disagree on this, but I, I've always been a believer in setting up different entities for each practice, not only from a liability standpoint, but if you want to have different ownership. Of between the the doctors you know for example if I have four locations and I'm going to have four different fellow owners with me at those different locations if I had it all under one entity I would have to give somebody equity in the entire whole of all the practices even though they might not work or perform any services for the other practices Mm -hmm. they you know now if I want to give them equity I've got to give it to them in the mothership that has an interest in all the practices. Whereas had I put them in separate entities, I can just set up the equity for them in the practice with which they work. And um, to me, I think that's a better way to do it. But I I do know that there are others that disagree. There are DSOs where one practice entity, um, you know, owns, you know, a dozen locations in one state. And, you know, and I, I, I think that they believe it's, it's a simplification. It's easier to do that um, and it's one tax ID number and so forth. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, again, because I represent so many individual entrepreneur practitioners, um, when they try to scale their business, being able to have a different entity at each practice that you can have different equity setups with um, at each practice, I think is, is an advantage. Gotcha.
1: That's good. That's, that's a good answer. Uh, Sometimes I get that question. I'm like, uh, I'm not a lawyer or an accountant. Um, So you have to go talk to those folks first. Uh, That, uh, that makes sense to me. Um, As far as what mistakes are you seeing right now that are happening? If you were like, Hey, here's just the two things that are going on right now, Pat, and these things are, you know, really, uh, what's the polite word here? Messing up the the client's life because they did not think about this in advance.
0: You know, if there's a top two or top three list, what would they be? Well, a, a couple of things that that pop up, um, and they come up in the context of. Let's say somebody is doing a DSO deal and now they're going to be subject to this extensive due diligence. It often uncovers a lot of those uh, warts, if you will, or things that are being done um, improperly by doctors. And you do see a little bit of a trend. Um, one is poor associate agreements, uh, either associate agreements that are lacking in, you know in specifics, or they don't have um, reasonably structured, Uh, restrictive covenants in them. Uh, You know, they're either over the top with an an unenforceable restrictive covenant or they don't have them at all, or they have watered down versions of them. You can never look at another tooth again. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, you have to really look at, look at that. And there's a lot of mistakes. The other thing too is you never know whether or not you might have an issue um, getting an associate when you do a deal to sign on to a new contract and um, it's why when we do an associate agreement, we put in a number of provisions that create the ability for the practice to simply transfer that associate agreement to an acquirer. And it doesn't require the consent um, of the employee associate. Um, so I think that, that that having a really good associate agreement um, structured, and again, it's not just like borrow your friends or go to the internet, hit print. You know, you really should do it right, and and again, be thinking with the end in mind. If you know you might be doing the transaction down the road, and that associate agreement is going to come under a lot of scrutiny, and you, you know, you really have to make sure that you've that that you've done it right. The other thing is because um, you asked me for a couple of examples. Right. Hold
1: on, hold on. too. Yeah. I want to make sure that I understand that because I think you made a point that I had to write down. And I know John, I saw John rice scribbling with his crayons over there. I should not get legal advice
0: from Facebook. Is that what you, is that what? Yes. I am suggesting that you might actually want to get legal advice from an experienced lawyer in the dental profession. Okay. All right. Got it. All right. Very good. So next number two. Okay. Number two. um, And I see this a lot is the misclassification of someone who should be an employee, but they're being misclassified as an independent contractor. And, There are very specific rules, both IRS um, on the federal basis and Department of Labor regulations on the state-by-state basis that actually set forth exactly what criteria someone has to meet in order to qualify as an independent contractor. And I understand that practices like to classify people as independent because they don't have to pay benefits, they don't have to pay all the um, employment taxes and, and withholding. Um, but and employees, you know, workers like it sometimes, too, because they get paid gross dollars that they can potentially offset expenses against and perhaps put more money in their pocket. But the problem that people overlook is that it's not their decision to decide whether they're they're an independent contractor or not. They've got to follow both the federal and state regulations. So, again, this often comes up in the context of transactions. And when these sophisticated law firms and accounting firms start doing their due diligence on a doctor and they've misclassified, it's a reduction of their EBITDA and a reduction of their their valuation because they're going to take those those people who should have been classified properly and they're going to impute all the expenses for benefits and taxes and all those things. They're going to impute that to the relationship. And that's going to be a reduction in your EBITDA times the multiple. So if somebody's getting- read, read less money, you get paid less money, much less money, dear
1: listeners. Go
0: ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that that's going to be another uh, example of a, of a place where, you know, that not only, by the way, can you get audited by the IRS or the Department of Labor and cause yourself a lot of heartache and taxes and penalties and so forth for misclassifying. But if in the context of a transaction, it's going to cost you as well. And, you know, um, you know, it's again, it's just. It's something that you gotta you gotta do right, and and it's often done incorrectly. And and I mean, you can go on and on. There's a lot of different things that doctors do wrong, but right now, those are two big ones that I see that pop up all the time. I feel the second one is very good, and so
1: it's not just dentists that do it either. So there's several industries. You know, I'm not going. This is dental business radio, so I'm not going to get into it, even though some of them are related. Anyway, yeah. here's the deal. I think that when Uncle Sam needs money. That he's going to come knocking, and I, I, as a business owner, I want to stay as far away from that gray area or line as possible, right? Um, because when Uncle Sam needs money, he's going to come looking for somebody, and he thinks that everybody, that
0: all the doctors are rich. Well, I, you know, here is the thing that I've always seen throughout my career that that government workers um, go for the low hanging fruit, and um, because it's easy and in sure. Misclassification of independent contractors is low-hanging fruit because it's it's once you've come under scrutiny, it's very hard to um, to prove compliance, and um, you know, it, and it's easy for them to be able to you know charge the the tax, the penalties, and the interest. Um, so you know that's why I always tell my doctors, you know, listen, let's get let's make sure people are classified the right way. I know you want to save the money. And in the short term, that feels good. But in the long term, you'll be glad that you did it right.
1: Mm-hmm. Didn't, in New, you know, New Jersey, they said everybody has to be W-2, right?
0: No, no. I mean, there there are, um, you know, independent contractor, um, you know, allowances in all states. I mean, you know, some states like California implemented what they call like the ABC test. And, and it made it a lot harder to be an independent contractor. Um, But it didn't make it impossible. You just, you know, each state has different regulations and you just have to make sure that you can comply. Gotcha. But nobody wants to knock on the door from. I I give you an example, by the way, of, of, uh, of someone who could comply. Let's say I'm an oral surgeon and I have my own practice and I also do, uh, you know, a day a month or a day every other week in two or three different practices Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm one of those general dentistry practices and I'm bringing an oral surgeon in one or two days a month and I'm filling their schedule and I have an independent contractor agreement with them mm-hmm. and they've got their independence, they tell me when they're going to be available to come and take care of my patients at my practice. Um, you know, they've got their their own business. They've got their own insurance. They, they, they really are truly independent. That is a scenario where a general dentist, for example, could have a specialist who comes in and potentially properly classify them as an independent contractor. The mistake is when someone basically doesn't work anywhere else except in your practice and you're calling them an independent contractor, you're going to lose that argument every time. Gotcha. Well,
1: I'd like the oral surgery example, Bill. Um, We have a lot of uh, oral surgeons that listen to the program and we've had the American association of oral and maxillofacial surgeons, Amos on the program a couple of times. We'll see you in New Orleans, Karin and everybody at Amos. Um, So moving on, let's talk about transition. So one of the things that I see and I hear, especially this time of year, all right, is the kids get out of school, And I say kids, but um, I'm getting older and not as cool if I ever was. But anyway, I digress. They get out of school and they call and they say, Patrick, I just bought a practice this morning. It's Wednesday. Can we get credentialed? And we want high fees on Friday or on Monday. Can you make that happen? And I I try not to laugh. Um, And it's but I, I just said nobody's explained what any of this is. I know that the credentialing and the contracting is just one small part of the overall timeline. But it seems to me that there's there's some prep work done like the due diligence has to be done and then you close and then it's like fire drill. What else can folks do to prepare?
0: And how long maybe should they start preparing? Well, when you say prepare, are you saying this is for someone who comes out and buys a practice, uh, or someone who um, does a startup? And what? Well, let's go.
1: Let's start there because the more experienced, the more experienced uh, folks and the ones that are established business owners. Like the one thing I ask them, I said, "Look, have you ever owned a business before?" If they say no, and then I'm like, "All right, so." Here's a few things that you need to do. Um, you know, wel- welcome to the business owner club. Now you're the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the website design person, the HR person. Um, you're everything and in, in, in all. Oh, by the way, you got to be a dentist too. So congratulations. Nobody's got a jacket for you, but welcome to the club. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, and so their situation is a little bit different than the, the, the experienced, you know, years long business owner, I think. So let's start with, um, for all the kids that are listening to the show, and I say kids in the most respectful way, for all the new graduates out there, or maybe you've been in the work for working for a DSO, and now you're gonna buy your first practice. What should they be thinking about?
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, for, for someone like that, um, they're gonna want to buy our first book, pain-free dental deals available on Amazon. Oh, yes. shameless books. I, uh, I read I read one book. And so I didn't do enough homework. That's right. Our first, our first book, Pain Free Dental Deals, uh, is really designed very much for that that first time deal maker. Whether they're buying a practice or it's an associate buy in transaction, whatever it is, um, it, it's it's designed for them. And and I, I jokingly say that as a shameless plug, but it, but it actually has a lot of great content for the for that person who's doing their first deal. From my standpoint, um, when you know. I think every person should do what they're great at. And one of the things that that I recommend for the younger folks that are about to become entrepreneurs is um, to assemble the right team around you. Uh, you, you don't have to be uh, an accountant and you don't have to be a lawyer and you don't have to be a property and casualty insurance expert. And you don't have to be an expert in practice management, um, you know, and you don't have to go against uh, insurance companies for credentialing and and getting the best fee, uh, you know, reimbursements that that are available on your own. Oh, it's it's Um, super fun. You you know, so you you assemble a team. And the way I look at it is it's like your little board of directors. If you put the right group of people around you. And you fill all those spots, and another spot on that list of professionals would be your banker. And people say, "Well, what do you mean, a banker?" I, I always say, you know, you don't just want to like walk into a branch to try to get financing or you know deal with just some person that that is is you have no relationship with. Just like your lawyer, your accountant, your insurance professional, your practice management consultant, you want to have a relationship with your your banker too, and be able to call that person up when you need them, whether it's to you know finance a new piece of equipment or another location or refinance existing debt. Um, so assemble the right team around yourself and, and then you don't have to be all those things you, because you can get excellent advice from people who are experts in their their space and you know you don't have to make the mistakes that people have made in the past. And and you don't necessarily have to follow what the doctor did, whose practice you're buying, because you might find out that, you know, they were like mediocre entrepreneurs that, you know, they could have been a lot better. Their practice could have been more successful.
1: That was very kind. Um,
0: So, (laughs) you know, I think, I think that that's a very, it's in a very important place. So my starting place for all those young doctors out there is assemble your little board of directors of all the different professionals that you'll need to advise you during your career. And then you don't have to be an expert in all those areas. Amen. I am not an expert at anything except for the one thing that I do.
1: If you don't believe me, just ask my wife. She'll tell you. So (laughs) um, the bank is, I didn't think about that though. Um, Yeah, It's always good to have friends with money, a lot of money. Yeah.
0: and in the book too i also on that list uh mentioned uh practice brokers another you know especially when you're you're just launching and you're actually looking for your first acquisition opportunity affiliating with some really good practice brokers who can you know who are in your region that you want to end up in that that have good reputations that can help you find the right opportunity and uh, you know remembering that dental practice Deals are often done on an exclusive basis. So um, the general public might not even be aware that a certain practice is for sale unless they have a connection to the, to the right broker. So, um, you know, a little plug for the brokers out there in America, but, uh, you know, that's another person that could be on that list of professionals that help you out when you're looking for your first practice. I wrote that down. Thanks. And practice brokers, I wouldn't have thought about that actually either. That's just not, not in my world. Yeah. and And remember, I mentioned practice management. Um, you know, we've got you know folks like our friends at Fortune Management where they'll help a doctor acquiring their first practice by even doing a courtesy evaluation of the practice. in essence, a you know evaluation and a, and a practice analysis to kind of look at the strengths and weaknesses of the practice. and you know, in the spirit of developing a relationship, They'll do it at no charge to the to the doctor, which is which is incredible. They're and it's the largest, oldest practice management firm in the country. They're
1: really in the good guy business. I have a lot of respect for them, a lot of respect for, for Bernie Stoltz. Um shout out for Bernie. Hey Bernie, how are you? We'll see you soon, probably. Um, maybe in Pebble Beach, maybe in Atlanta, maybe on this side. I don't know, but I'm sure we will cross paths. Um, so assemble the right team. Now let's move to the transition to. Let's say that you are an established doc, right? You have a pretty good idea about what's going on. You've got at least three quarters of your team of trusted advisors in place. Um, What are they, how much time and prep are they, do they need to put into it um, from a legal perspective? And then I'm going to have to throw in my two cents from from a contracting standpoint.
0: Well, again, what are you talking about if if they're established and they're going to buy, they're buying their first practice? What under what context?
1: So let's do that first.
0: Let's say you got your one practice, now you're going to two, because that's
1: a big deal. And this is just anecdotal for me, but they go from one to two, no problem. Two to three, mm, they're stretching themselves thin because you can't clone themselves. That technology is not available yet. where I see the, where there's a biggest challenge is from three to six locations. That's where there, the you can't, it's very, it's much more difficult to um, export the culture. Um, there's different demographics, even if it's in the same city uh, and etc. cetera. Um, and so that's where it, it becomes more difficult to replicate the process. And this is just anecdotal. I do not have any scientific or empirical evidence to back this up except for Talking to many, many, many providers and watching some of them um, burn out.
0: Yeah, well, I I agree with you. Um, I mean, look, any what's the old saying? Uh, you know, measure twice, cut once. Um, in anything you do in business, you should be thinking it through and doing your diligence in in advance. And again, with your group of advisors around you, um, you can avoid a lot of pain and um, and and be more, you know, be successful and do it faster. Um, I mentioned earlier, and I agree with you that when, when you start a second practice, you can, you can kind of get away with in essence, running both practices and and just stretching yourself a little thinner, not that I'm advising it, but I I rarely see a doctor fail who's gone to two practices, um, even if they're not necessarily doing it in the best way. Um, I, I've seen them continue to be successful. But after that, I agree with you. When you go to three and then beyond, um, that's why I mentioned earlier, that's where you really need to to look at minority partnerships. You're going to have to have doctors on the ground in those locations who are have a, a vested interest in the success of the practice because they're in it and they're going to benefit from the success. Um, so choosing... You know, partners is also not unlike choosing a spouse because uh, partnerships are a lot like marriages. And when they go south, they're a lot like divorces. And Amen. So, so knowing um, that you're that you're picking people that have the right um, culture, fit and philosophy, people that are um, that kind of buy into, you know, what what your vision is and and what your culture is. So, you know, sometimes that might be that you've built out practice number one so successfully that you already have an an associate or two in there, or maybe you have one associate and you might have an opportunity for another location and actually say to that associate, hey, I might buy another practice. Would you like to be a partner in that practice? Now, you know, they're, they're already part of the culture that you've created. They're already part and sharing in the vision because they've been with you. And in essence, you're creating now an opportunity for them for ownership and to in essence run that other location. Um, And, and that's another approach to take And again, that's being methodical, right? That's building that that person up and then creating that opportunity, Um, and partnership isn't for, for everybody, you know, you'll find that there are people out there who, uh, who've been offered partnerships and they don't accept it. They want to show up for their schedule. They want to get their 35% of collections. And, um, you know, and when the day is over, they want to be able to hang it up and, and their mind be kind of free and clear of, of any responsibilities, you know, in terms of the actual running of that operation. I remember, um, when I was a lot younger, when I was a teenager, um into my twenties the dentist I had at the time personally was uh you know just a terrific guy terrific dentist and at one point when I was in my twenties I asked him uh his name was Steve I said Steve you know how come they never made you a partner here how come you're not you know, not you're not an owner um and and he said oh well actually they asked me to be a partner a bunch of times just not for me so you know in terms of your question on timing um to create those relationships and find those right fit people, and you know that's something that does take a lot of time, and you don't want to make a mistake. So, you know, when you if you know that you want to be a multi practice operator, you start planning for what that might look like. You know, I think well in advance, and it, in my opinion, it's it could be a, you know a year, two or three in advance of that, you start to lay the groundwork for it.
1: That's an excellent answer, and so mine's going to seem pale in comparison. Because it, all of that goes into it. The contracts are always in effort. Now I'm talking about the PBOs. Um, What are you going to do about it? You don't wait until the last minute. Your cash flow will go in the toilet. You'll have patient disruption. And you'll have staff disruption. And so you want to avoid all of that. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But you want to plan it out. And no, we're not... A- credentialing company and credentialing sucks everybody hates it um but it's a necessary evil just so you know so you got to plan it you can have a plan for it um i'm switching gears completely to something that i'm always that I'm, I'm really curious about how come they so in the ppo contracts all of the every single one of them has a confidentiality agreement okay you can't discuss fees this is proprietary information this is basic stuff um at my, at my company, everybody has a confidentiality agreement, right? How come, and or is it done, or is it common practice for dental practices to have everybody sign off on if you see something that is proprietary, that that can't be shared or be put on Facebook or et cetera, um, you know, very basic stuff like, like that, um, is 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 that common practice? And if not, why not?
0: So it's a very good question, actually. Uh, it, it should be common practice. Uh, you don't have to have a full-blown restrictive covenant for, let's say, your, your employees. I mean, your associates, where, where non-competes are permissible, you should have them. And as long as they're reasonably limited in time and geography uh, and they're not over the top, they'll likely be enforceable and you know and i recommend that that you have that and included in that you know part restrictive covenants take on it, it's it's a description for several different things everyone thinks of non compete initially but there's not solicitation there's also confidentiality and you know i always include confidentiality provisions in every agreement we do but even at the staff level you can have a much simpler uh yeah, a basic basic, yeah. a, basic agreement that has confidentiality and maybe non-solicitation, basically just saying, hey, if you leave our employment for any reason, you're not going to come back and poach fellow staff members to go work somewhere else. Um, and anything you learned here that's confidential has to be um, you know, maintained as, as confidential. Now, interestingly enough, um, and, and, and that is the absolute best way to do it. And people should do it. A lot of people don't do it. Um, there's nothing better than the strength of a really good confidentiality provision in that in that document. Having said that, a lot of people are not aware that in just you know just about everywhere there is also a common law duty of confidentiality, and you can actually sue somebody on a on the common law duty of confidentiality and be successful in it. There are some states where the the case law um, absent an agreement is actually quite strong. And, and, and where that comes into play is often, for example, with regard to patient lists, you don't have to have a restrictive covenant to, to be able to protect a patient list because the courts recognize a practice has an absolute interest in in that and, and downloading the names and addresses and emails and phone numbers of, of patients and then exploiting that. Even absent an agreement, a lawsuit will likely be successful against someone who does that. Right. Cause that is stealing. Would that be? Well, it's not stealing in our, the in the criminal sense, but it is taking things that you're not entitled to in the civil sense. <laughs> mm, in the art world, they call it appropriation.
1: Um, well, I think that uh, John Ray over there is giving me the wrap up signal. And so Bill, I'd like to thank you again, very much for your time. Uh, this has been enlightening uh, the DSO decision, pain-free dental deals. And, out of New York City, super lawyer, author, and speaker, uh, Bill Barrett. I'd like to give a shout out uh, at your firm to Dennis Alessi, um, who I think is one of the uh, most astute healthcare legal minds in the country. Uh, Dennis, hello. Uh, maybe he'll listen to the program if we give him a little shout out on the show. Well,
0: now that you now that you gave Dennis some serious props, uh, you know he'll have to he'll have to listen. <laughs> <laughs> They'll want to listen. You're they're the first guy to get, give them the shout out. No, I'm just kidding. Uh. Dennis is amazing. You're right. And, um, and he, he's just been doing regulatory, you know, healthcare regulatory for almost 40 years at this point. So uh, there's really no greater authority. So I appreciate you giving him uh, that shout out. Yeah. I love
1: talking to, to Dennis so we can totally dork out, um, which I think I'd actually make a show, but there wouldn't be as many listeners. Um, so with that, I'd also like to thank our sponsor practice quotient and so PPO analysis and negotiation and strategic guidance is really what we do. So if you're a top tier dental professional and you don't feel like you're getting top tier compensation for your stellar work and efforts, if you have the best technology out there, um, if you have some competitive advantages in your marketplace and you don't feel like you're able to take advantage of them, or you're getting paid like somebody who just graduated last week, then, um, You should probably call a professional. That's all I'm saying. Um, I'd like to thank John Ray and the business radio X family. And is there anybody else? I think we're going to an event bill. Is there anybody we want to give a quick shout out to?
0: Well, I think uh, all of our friends at uh, fortune management gathering in Charlotte, North Carolina over the next couple of days for the fortune 50 Uh, it's going to be some great, great speakers and, and great information. And, a lot of powerhouse practices that are getting together. Right, Shout out to everybody
1: in Charlotte. And I think that is at the uh, terrific Ballantyne hotel. I've been there. Um, I like it a lot. Uh, I do think that they should have a golf course. Uh, they had
0: one, they tore it up. Yeah. They basically bulldozed it 18 holes and hundred acres. That's going to be uh, like, you know, 400 strip malls. So it's just going to be gorgeous. So mm-hmm. yeah, no comment. <laughs>
1: All, right. All right. So Bill, thank you very much. This has been terrific. Did you have a good time?
0: Had a great time. Appreciate you having me on. And hopefully, uh, you know, when I write my next book, maybe you'll have me back on again.
1: All right. Terrific. Well, dear listeners, until next time.